0: Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidman, and this is a paper spotlight with Paul Eastwick. We're going to talk about his recent EJP paper entitled Predicting Romantic Interest During Earlier Relationship Development, a Pre-Registered Investigation Using Machine Learning. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Paul, can you tell me a little bit about what was the goal of your study? Sure. So this was a data set that was collected by a few of my colleagues, Dan Molden, Katie Carswell, and Eli Finkel. And it's a really unique data set that looks not at initial attraction in the way we have studied it over the last few decades sort of looking at initial impressions say speed dating studies nor is this a classic study of close relationships where you're getting you know people reporting on their established romantic partners and if you're not in a romantic partnership you're not allowed to be in the study this is something in between where people are reporting on other people that they actually know that they're potentially romantically interested in, and then we follow those people over time to see how those romantic interests develop. So this is kind of a tough period of time to catch, as it turns out, because People have lots of fleeting romantic interests, right? They're interested in one person one week. They're interested in somebody else the next week. And so what you see is that there are sort of all of these different potential partners coming in and out of people's lives. So we wanted to try to capture what that period of time looked like, and in particular, we wanted to try to get a sense of whether people were more likely to remain especially interested in partners who matched participants' ideal partner preferences, as reported at the very beginning of the study you know items like um would really like to be with a partner who is attractive or a partner who's exciting right so are you more likely to remain interested in partners to the extent that they end up matching your ideals as you reported earlier that sounds really interesting how did you test your hypotheses there are actually a whole bunch of different ways of calculating the way Uh, somebody matches a partner's ideals. And without getting into sort of the myriad different ways of thinking about it and conceptualizing, we basically did all of them here. There are some ways of calculating this match that are very uh, much strict similarity hypotheses Uh, There are some that capture similarity, but also capture some other junk in there, too, like, well, if I think the person has positive traits, that's sort of going to slip into the metric in various ways. There's also response surface analysis, right, which is, you know, sort of a new approach that people are especially excited about. That's a, you know, a slightly different way of testing a similarity hypothesis like this. We used all of them. We wanted to see what happened to people's romantic interest when you looked at similarity between a partner's traits and a participant's ideals operationalized in all these different ways. And what did you find? Well, we found that the, what I would call the strict similarity approaches, those didn't really do all that much, right? So one way of doing this approach sort of looks at the correlation between my ideals and a potential partner's traits after you subtract something called the normative desirability compound, right? So you have to mean center all the items. Your listeners may be into such details, but but when you do that and you use that sort of approach, that really did nothing to tell us who these participants were going to be especially interested in, either at first or over time. The response service analyses also didn't show us all that much. What is interesting is that if you use some of these other, there's sort of these much simpler approaches where you say, okay, what is the correlation between somebody's ideals and these potential partners' traits that they're nominating? So if I'm somebody who likes attractiveness, do I think all my potential partners are attractive? And that's in there. So. What that tells me is that sort of the strict similarity or the strict compatibility way of thinking about this matching process doesn't really work. But there is something that perhaps people are doing as they construct their romantic pools in the first place that has something to do with ideals. Now, maybe it's, well, if I really want attractiveness, I'm going to go hang out where all the hot people are. It's also possible that this sort of reflects general response biases. And I don't mean that to like denigrate it. I mean, like, you know, some people have a real schema for attractiveness such that they see it everywhere. Right. They like it and they also see it in in other people. Right. So there are other sort of schematic ways of interpreting those kinds of correlations. But I think this was an interesting case where when we went with the strict similarity approach, we didn't see much evidence for it. But if we use some of the other approaches, then it actually looks like many of these prior studies that have used what I would call those less strict approaches. And what would you say is the take-home message of your paper? What's interesting about this is that we can use ideal partner preference matching as one lens for thinking about what I would call a compatibility hypothesis. And there are many different kinds of compatibility hypotheses out there, right? Many compatibility hypotheses rest on the idea that somebody like person A is going to fit very well with somebody like person B, right? So ideal partner preference matching is one way of thinking about that, but similarity matching is another. And if you're into like mate value matching, right, that's another way of thinking about it. And it could be you know, esoteric and weird, like, oh, you know, people who view themselves as adventurous tend to be especially happy with partners who are interested in going out to dinner a lot, right? It could be things that researchers would never dream up, but there are sort of effects in the data that can help us to understand where compatibility comes from. So once you start realizing that compatibility hypotheses really can run wild, and in fact, there's many such hypotheses that are published in the literature all the time, you think, well, wouldn't there be a cool way of trying to capture how many effects like this are in the data set? And that is where we turn to machine learning. Because what we can effectively do with data sets like these is ask whether you see that particular combinations of individual differences, on the one hand, and then perceptions of what the partner is like, on the other hand, do these things combine in a synergistic way that explains more variability than if you just use sort of one of those buckets alone? When we do that, we don't find much evidence that this is where compatibility comes from. Meaning that when you have these perceptions that these participants have of their partners, right? The machine learning analyses tell us that, you know, we can explain somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 25% of the variance, 30% of the variance, depending on which sort of machine learning approach you use. But if you add individual differences, that adds a couple percentage points to what you can explain. It's not a lot. And that is consistent with a mediational model, which I think is probably very comfortable and familiar to a lot of personality and social psychologists. The idea that individual differences shape how you view your partners, but it doesn't give us much confidence in this compatibility idea that the extent to which I view you as somebody that I'm really upset if I'm not around you, or somebody who I think really likes me back, that individual differences may not be strongly moderating those kinds of perceptions, that individual differences as moderator in this context actually may only be sort of really working at the margins to explain where compatibility comes from. Cool. And what are your hopes on how researchers follow up on this study? This is a good question because it's just tricky in a lot of ways. And there's more or less incendiary takes on this kind of approach in general, right? The idea that we can understand the power of of individual difference moderation using any kind of machine learning approach. And let me be the first to say, like, I think we social scientists are still learning a lot about exactly what these approaches are doing and what they can tell us. I learned a lot more in this review process. I had been led to believe with some earlier papers that, oh, maybe we were being too conservative with relying on these machine learning estimates and it's not so bad. And now I get machine learning reviewers who are like, you are not being nearly conservative enough. You know, these models are should be performing not nearly as good as what you're suggesting. So anyway, all of this is to say, I think there's divergent opinions on exactly how much, say, for example, individual differences should be able to explain above and beyond these various target perceptions. But I do think at a fundamental level, we need to think in different ways about where compatibility comes from, because I don't think these results or really any results I've seen have made me question that compatibility is important that compatibility is really central to what makes relationships go well or go poorly. What I am starting to have doubts about is the idea that individual difference interactions are the things that explain compatibility, that there is a robust between subjects component to compatibility. And that leaves us with this question of, okay, so if it's not about like your traits combined with my traits or my interests combined with your interests, then where is compatibility coming from? Because <laughs> what we're used to is there's me and there's you and there's you and me together. I think there is this fourth thing out there that we've not really gotten good at studying. And it's it's you and me, but not in any meaningful between subjects way of describing that concept, right? Sort of you and me and what we have constructed over time with the implication that if we could rewind time and do it all again, you'd get something totally different. So it's not about like your traits combined with my traits. It's about this sort of thing that has been constructed along the way. And if that's where compatibility comes from, we need to start thinking a little bit differently about how we're gonna capture those effects empirically because interactions with individual differences are not gonna do it. Thank you so much for talking with me about your paper. Sure, thank you.